I'm delighted to be addressing you on the feast of St. Albert the Great, of course the great Dominican of the uh, 13th century. Uh, St. Albert was briefly Bishop of Regensburg in Germany, actually for three years, after which he was able to secure permission to resign. <laughs> now G.K. Chesterton once made the remark that every modern conversation begins one step too early, or too late, rather. And I think that's exactly true when we consider the church. When we consider the church immediately, we think of its structure. So, there are the ordained, the religious, and laity. And who are the laity? Well, there are, of course, the non-ordained. If you are not ordained or a religious, and you are a Catholic, you are lay. You really can't help it. It's the default position, if you wish, in the church. And so we all know the model. There is a priest, pastor, and his flock. Or probably, more likely, the priest, pastor, and his critics. <laughs> but there is, and this is, I think, where I wish to begin my remarks, a sort of paradigmatic clericalism that is true of the church. I do not think it is ill-intended. In fact, to some degree, I think it is not intended at all. Nonetheless, it has become true that there's a widespread assumption in the Catholic community that to have any real agency in the church, it is, of course, necessary to be ordained. This is not true, in fact. It is not the teaching of the magisterium. But it is our paradigm. I think the test of this is exactly the fact that when a lay Catholic, most lay Catholics, speak of the church, they're referring to the hierarchy. I know when priests speak of the church, we're generally referring to the bishops. When the bishops say the church, I'm not sure how, further, how much further they can pass the buck. But we tend to disenfranchise ourselves. And so the church teaches means the hierarchy teaches. Or the church believes means, I suppose, the hierarchy believes. Now, I think, first of all, this apprehension, and by paradigm, a paradigm controls the manner of our relationship. It's not a matter of ideas, simply. And I don't think it is possible to change a paradigm merely by changing ideas. At the Second Vatican Council, as Russ has said, a great deal was said about the role of the laity. But what is said, I think, is filtered through the, parad the paradigm, the way that we actually relate to each other. And as a matter of fact, I wish to show this, I think there's a sort of schizophrenia in the documents themselves of the Second Vatican Council around the laity. Well, first of all, I think the apprehension that the laity can have no agency in the church is founded upon the uh, conception that the purpose of the church is predominantly or even exclusively the care of souls. And so we read in Christus Dominus, this is the document on the bishops of the Second Vatican Council, that 
the parish exists solely for the care of souls. Now what is meant by the care of souls? It means the, sac the sacramental nourishment of the people of God. The end of the care of souls is personal holiness or personal piety. And I think that most Catholics have a sense that personal piety, that holiness, is in fact the end of the church. This is what we are to somehow secure. And so the care of souls. But if the business of the church is the care of souls, then it's pretty obvious to see that the laity can have little agency in that. I'm not referring to ministries that lay people can undertake by delegation. And so when the assist in the pastoral care of the community at the discretion and through the delegation of the bishop or the pastors. Such ministries, of course, are not proper to the laity as lay, but are instead extraordinary ministers, and that is what we call them. With the paradigm created, I think, by an overemphasis on the care of souls, the vocation of laymen and women as lay would seem to be to receive the benefit of Christ's redemptive mission to receive the sacraments and hopefully to grow in holiness. And so we have, I think, a sort of paradigmatic clericalism. If personal piety is the focus of the Catholic imagination, and I think that is what it has been, then there is a tendency, and this is a problem, to divide Christians into perfect and imperfect. Now this tends from the Middle Ages. I'll speak of that a little bit more in a moment. But we read in the Decretals of Gratian, writing, uh, beginning to write in about 1150, that there are perfect and imperfect Christians. The perfect, of course, are the religious and the hierarchy. The imperfect, <laughs> the laity. And there is a sense, I think, in the Catholic community and in the world as it looks at the church, that the hierarchy somehow, or the vowed religious, are to manifest holiness or personal piety to a greater degree than those who are burdened by secular concerns. This being the paradigm, laymen and women tend to identify the church with the hierarchy, and therefore to disenfranchise themselves, the church is identified with the bishops and the priests. And what follows from this improper identification is that when a bishop is immoral, then the whole church is held to be corrupt. Now this, I think, is certainly a good part of what we are witnessing right now. The, a, a cardinal clearly betrays his office, but the whole church somehow is, by this means, corrupted. Now, whence this idea that there are perfect and imperfect Catholics, so that the care of souls really is the whole business of the church. And I think this has very deep roots in the community. And so the early medieval church is marked, especially in the West, by the monastic movement. The monk is early on regarded not in terms of function or role in the church, but rather in terms of a way of holiness, 
which comes to be called a state in life. This too is part of our paradigm. And so we have states of life. The ordination, a state of life. Religious life, a state of life. Marriage life, a state of life. The monk seeks a life of holiness, of personal consecration to God, a life of penance and a seeking of perfection. And I was taught as a young Dominican um, back when the earth's crust was cooling that in fact religious life is a more perfect manifestation of the following of Christ than is true of a lay vocation, even marriage. Although marriage is a sacrament, of course, and religious consecration is not. Now the monk is precisely not a layperson. The monk leaves the world behind. In light of the monastic life, the laity come to be regarded in terms of a state in life which contrasts with that of the monastics and clerics, whether men or women. Now from at least the reign of Charlemagne, crowned Roman, Holy Roman Emperor in 800, there is a movement to organize all of temporal life under the supreme regulation of the church. Apart from the role in society of the secular ruler, emperor, king, prince, and by the way, secular rulers were extremely important in the Middle Ages, but apart from the consecrated monarch, the laity tend to be defined negatively in that they are understood over against monastics and clerics. With the emphasis upon monastic life, the lay condition tends to be regarded as a concession to human weakness. And so we read in Pope Honorius II, he's Pope from 1224 until 11, uh, until, uh, sorry, 1124 until 1130. From the beginning, the church has offered two kinds of life to her children, one to help the insufficiency of the weak, the laity, another to perfect the goodness of the strong, the ordained. With a renewed emphasis upon the clerical office from the 13th century onward, the laity concerned with temporal affairs are considered to have little or no part in the sphere of sacred things. Hence, the definition of the layperson, one who has no part in the jurisdiction and especially of holy order, St. Thomas Aquinas. Laypersons have the right and responsibility to receive spiritual goods from the clergy, especially helps for salvation. And so we can sum up. Lay people do not live exclusively for heavenly things like monks, and lay persons have no power or of jurisdiction in the church. Now, the paradigm tends more and more towards a focus on personal piety. The vocation of the laity as lay, again, is understood by most Catholics to be a vocation to piety. But there are problems first one never achieves perfect holiness except in heaven. And so we're always going to be inadequate. Second, the paradigm tends to hold Jesus himself at a distance. The relation is one in which the lay person never acts in his place or with him, but only receiving the benefits of his relationship. I think that's a major concern. Third, there's little call for conversation among the laity. We're not likely to talk too much about our personal piety together. And so there is a tradition in the church, I believe, in which lay people relatively 
have relatively little conversation together about the faith. Now, the Second Vatican Council, in a sense, offers us an, a second paradigm. The first paradigm, again, the business of the church, the care of souls, laymen and women receiving the benefit of the church's min mission. But the council speaks, of course, for the first time in the history of the church of the mission of the laity as lay. And this, again, the first time in the history of the church. And it is surely because the church begins with the council to consider the evangelization of the modern world. In other words, to look outward. Yves Congar, the great Dominican theologian of the council, uh, claimed that in order for the role of the laity in, in the church to become clear, the church has to come to two realizations. Number one, there's a world out there. Number two, it's not the church. <laughs> now, we read in St. John Paul II, this is his first encyclical letter to the church, Redemptor Hominis, 1979. He's commenting Lumen Gentium and the Vatican documents. He says this, the church wishes to serve this single end. So the Catholic church has a single end. What is it? He says the church wishes to serve the single end that each person may be able to find Christ in order that Christ may walk with each person the path of life with the power of the truth about man and the world that is contained in the mystery of the incarnation and the redemption and with the power of the love that is radiated by that truth. Notice that Christ may walk with each man and each woman when I first read this encyclical, it was a month before my ordination, the, I, it, it startled me. I would have said that the church is the road that man and woman must walk. But the Holy Father insisted instead that man and woman is the road the church must walk. And that each man, each woman, meet Christ risen, the single end of the church. Now this being so, we require a different paradigm. The church is not for the sake of the care of souls or of Catholics or even of everyone within parish jurisdiction. It is that each man and each woman find Christ so that Christ may walk with each person the path of life. Now when we attend the church's mission to the world, the role of the laity in the mission of the church comes into focus and I think only then to proclaim the gospel to the world, every area of secular engagement. And by secular, most people don't realize that secular is a Catholic idea. It was an idea that grew out of the church. That secular, that there are things of divine importance and significance. We don't distinguish secular and profane. There are things of divine significance that are ordered to man and to woman and not to God directly. This is what is secular. And so God does not require an education, healthcare, the political order, and so on, men and women do. And so these are the secular things. There are, however, things that belong to God alone. Our worship, 
certainly, and of course, men and women. We cannot be, regard ourselves as in any sense secular. We have a dignity that extends to God himself. Our Lord, if you remember, teaches us that when he's asked if he should pay the tribute coin, the tax, and asks on the coin whose image and whose inscription. And they say Caesar's. And he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. But we might ask, what, is in, what bears the divine image and inscription? And it is, of course, the human person. And so there are secular things, properly secular things, that have their own dignity and their own order. And it is here the council calls the laity to undertake as lay the mission of the church. And so we read in Lumen Gentium 31, the pastoral, the pastoral constitution, the dogmatic constitution rather of the church in the modern world. What specifically characterizes the laity is their secular nature. It is true that those in holy orders can at times be engaged in secular activities and even have a secular profession. But they are by reason of their particular vocation especially and professedly ordained to the sacred ministry, that is to the care of the Christian community, the care of souls. But the laity, by their very vocation, seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering them according to the plan of God. It says later in this document that the laity are to restore to creation itself its original intention. This is huge. I have never actually seen that commented. They live, that is the laity, live in the world that is in each and in all of the secular professions and occupations. They live in the ordinary circumstances of family and social life from which the very web of their existence is woven. They are called there by God. St. John Paul insisted that we should regard, you should regard your present circumstance, your occupation, your relationships, the families, all of the different secular engagements that are yours as a divine call, as a vocation. Because it is there that you have the apostolic authority and the means of representing our Lord to the world, of walking with each man, each woman. They are called there by God, that by exercising their proper function and led by the spirit of the gospel, they may work for the sanctification of the world from within as a leaven. In this way, they make Christ known to others. Therefore, since they are tightly bound up in all types of temporal affairs, it is their special task to order and to throw light upon these affairs in such a way that they may come into being and then continually increase, according to Christ, to the praise of the Creator and Redeemer. The now, this clearly invites a different paradigm, one in which the laity are co-responsible with the hierarchy in the church's mission. But it is a different paradigm. It suggests a different relationship between lay and ordained than the relationship that we have inherited. Now, both paradigms are in fact reflected in the documents of the Vatican Council. So on the one hand, we read of the indispensable role of the laity in the vocation of the church. This is a little further in Lumen Gentium number 33. The lay apostolate 
is a participation in the salvific mission of the church itself. Through their baptism and confirmation, all are commissioned to that apostolate by the Lord himself. This was debated at the council. It is not by delegation of bishop or priest that you have apostolic dignity, but through your baptism, you are appointed to the apostolate by Christ himself. Moreover, by the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, the charity toward God and man, which is the soul of the apostolate, is communicated and nourished. Now the laity are called in a special way to make the church present and operative in those places and circumstances where only through them can it become the salt of the earth. So, every lay person, in virtue of the very gifts bestowed upon him or her at baptism, is at the same time a witness and a living instrument of the mission of the church itself, according to the measure of Christ's bestowal. And so, we are an apostolic community. That is, not merely a community founded upon the witness of the apostles, but a community of apostles, that is, of those who have been delegated by Christ himself, appointed by Christ himself to the apostolate, to the work of the church. Now, this on the one hand. On the other hand, reflecting upon the care of souls, the laity seem to regard it as a resource to the clergy when all else fails. So we also read in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, this is from, again, Christus Dominus and the bishops, the care of souls should always be infused with a missionary spirit so that it reaches out, as it should, to everyone living within the parish boundaries. If a pastor cannot contact certain groups of people, he should seek the assistance of others, even laymen who can assist him in the apostolate. Now, again, a different paradigm. I'm sure the fathers gathered at the council were unaware of this. But this is the paradigm we've inherited. There is a different paradigm proposed. Now, governance, therefore, in the church must insist upon the recognition of lay competence and of lay dignity. The, we read in Presbyter Ordem Ordinis, this is on, the, on, on the, de, de, the declaration of the council on the priests. Priests must sincerely acknowledge and promote the dignity of the laity and the part proper to them in the mission of the church. They should hold in high honor the just freedom which is due to everyone in the earthly city they must willingly listen to the laity, consider their wants in a fraternal spirit, recognize their experience and competence in the different areas of human activity so that together with them, they will be able to recognize the signs of the times and notice together with them. Now, our vocation, our apostolic vocation, is to stand in the place of Christ and to take on his mission as our own. In perhaps the greatest work so far on the laity in the church, the document Christi Fidelis Laici, Christ's Lay Faithful People, of St. John Paul II. This came out in 1988. The Holy Father considered the great commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Full authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all I've commanded you, Know that I am with you always. 
This, he said, is to be heard by each of us personally, not uh, by those whose state of life uh, requires a perfection the rest of us lack with respect to ordination. Now, vocation, therefore, is to stand in Christ's place in persona Christi. The early fathers call all of the baptized an altar Christus, another Christ. This is who we are. This is our dignity in Christ. We are baptized into his life, but also into his mission. And we are to order all things according to the relationship that our Lord reveals to us so that no human experience in the end will ever have been in vain. This is what it means to be redeemed. Now it is through the Christian, lay and ordained, that Jesus redeems and saves the world. And so the vocation of the lay person is properly priestly. And one of the most significant realizations that we have to come to and stay with is the fact that the principal idea of priesthood in the Catholic Church is the royal priesthood, the priesthood of the people of God, the priesthood bestowed in baptism. Thomas Aquinas, 13th century, only a priest can receive the Eucharist, the priesthood with which we have, into which we have been baptized. The purpose of the ministerial priesthood in the church is the animation of the royal priesthood. It is in order that Christ may stand in face-to-face -face relationship with those whom he has appointed to the apostolate. But if we are to think of ourselves, we are to think of ourselves as sent by Christ, we are apostles, sent ones, each of us with apostolic dignity. And so, the, now, the layperson is called to govern in the world, to govern. In other words, to order human affairs according to the plan of God and to be able to do that informed by the revelation. This is the lay office, the lay work. And I think it is proper to speak of a lay office in the church. I'm not alone in this. A certain Cardinal Ratzinger uh, held this, that we should actually speak of a sort of lay, a, a lay office in the church, a world office of the laity that is properly ecclesial because to the laity have been given responsibility for secular society. The lay faithful are shares in the priestly mission for which Jesus offered himself on the cross and continues to be offered in the celebration of the Eucharist. Incorporated in Jesus Christ, the baptized are united to him and to his sacrifice in the offering they make of themselves in their daily activities. And so the royal priesthood the offering of spiritual sacrifices. Now in our contemporary times, spiritual, of course, spiritual sacrifice sounds like uh, fluff. It's not real. If I tell you I'll be with you in spirit at this event, I mean, unfortunately, I won't be there. <laughs> and it is necessary for us to read the Vatican documents not through this sort of filter and not through the filter of the paradigm of relationship that we've inherited, but actually for what it is. Our Lord subordinated the, his governing role to his priesthood. This is huge. And so he did come as priest and prophet and king, 
that the kingly office is subordinated to his priesthood, he exercises his kingship by taking upon himself the burden of humanity and making an offering of it with himself to the Father. And this is precisely the priestly offering of the layperson, to take upon ourselves the situation and circumstances of the world in which we live, to make of that a personal offering to the Lord who then perfects it and through him we offer ourselves to the Father. A priest is mediator and a priest is one who offers sacrifice. The mediation is to take the sacrifice of our Lord which we receive in the Eucharist and to mediate that love in the very circumstances and situations in which you have been called by God to live. The sacrifice you offer is the sacrifice your, your very self, the same sacrifice that our Lord offered. And this is significant. When I offer the sacrifice at the Mass, when I hear confessions, when I baptize, I am merely an agent, an instrument. The, it is Christ who baptizes, Christ who forgives, Christ who preaches not Michael Sweeney. And the people of God do not want the forgiveness of Michael Sweeney or the sacrifice of Michael Sweeney, so what? <laughs> or especially the gospel according to Michael Sweeney. <laughs> but rather, it is Christ himself who offers himself in the sacrifice of the mass. It is Christ who baptizes, Christ who confirms, Christ who forgives. And my ministry in the church in that respect is, in a way, impersonal. I, the wonderful insight and sermon of St. Saint, Saint Augustine, with you I am a Christian, for you I am a bishop. In my office with you I am consoled. When I think of for you I am accused. <laughs> but this, the sacrifice I offer as a ministerial priesthood is not my own. The sacrifice you offer as a member of the royal priesthood is the sacrifice of yourself, the sacrifice of Christ himself. And this is the fundamental priesthood in the church. And so this is the first thing that we really must contemplate as a people, that the priesthood, the fundamental notion of priesthood in the church is the royal priesthood. And St. Paul, the creation itself is to be redeemed in the very person of the Christian, in, a, through, in and through our bodies. N you must never come to Mass alone. You bring with you those with whom you work, your families, those entrusted to you, and make of them an offering to our Lord in order that you may bring to them the grace that you receive in the sacrament. Now, this invites clearly a different paradigm. And I think this is the only solution, finally, to what we confront as a church. I regard what is happening now as symptom, not cause. Symptom in the sense that the, this wrong sort of paradigm with which we have lived is finally exposed. But the paradigm is one of co-responsibility, and that has to mean four things. First, 
If we are co-responsible, we have equal responsibility for the end. And remember, the single end of the church is that each man and each woman find Christ, that Christ may walk with each man, each woman. And so we have equal responsibility for the end, as does the hierarchy. Second, the tasks have to have, the tasks themselves in contribution to the end have to be seen to have equal dignity. Otherwise, it is not co-responsibility. If, for example, it is my uh, uh, job to offer a talk and your job to set up the chairs, that's an important task, but it isn't co-responsibility. If it's my task, on the one hand, to put you to sleep by my talk, and your task to pick their pockets, <laughs> then we can speak of co-responsibility <laughs> because our tasks have equal dignity. <laughs> this is what we are looking at and must look at in the church, that the tasks themselves have equal dignity. Third, that we have equal voice in discerning the means to the end. The church has entrusted to laymen and women the redemption of the secular order. And in that conversation, the hierarchy, members of the, those are ordained, and laymen and women must have equal voice. And what we require in our church more than anything else is the means to that. The work that I'm presently undertaking is a serious formation for laymen and women that assumes competence, but simply informs so that there is a, a theological framework common to the laity. They may have w one voice then, one language, and that must be respected by the hierarchy. And so the folks who go through a formation that is properly lay, it seems to me, must know very well the lay role in the church. They must know very well the church's social teaching because this is where you live and work, and in fact, uh, to a better degree than do the ordained. This, by the way, was, would not be too difficult. And then finally, not only an equal voice in discerning the means to the end of the church's mission, but a real accountability to each other. And so we actually take counsel together. This, again, a different paradigm. But the way that this paradigm is able to come into being is simply by beginning to relate in a different way. Now, I can tell you that it is difficult for a, a, a member of the clergy to relate in this manner. I'm working with, uh, Sean Bryan is here with me. By the way, if any of you are aware of uh, American Ninja Warrior, um, the television, Sean is a papal ninja. He has, uh, I have my thousands, he has his tens of thousands <laughs> the, uh, following him. The, uh, but we work together. Now, uh, and we are co-responsible. Now, by the way, I find when I work with a millennial, you, know, you don't really work with a millennial, you work for a millennial. And, and this is even more difficult for the clergy. <laughs> but to be co-responsible, to have equal voice, and to have real accountability together. Now, this is the paradigm the council invites. And the work of the church in the next years must be to implement that paradigm. This can be done at the parish level, just real conversations with your pastor. This must be done at the diocesan level. 
and it can be done at the diocesan level. Rome, in this case, won't interfere. Now, and then there must be a formation for the sake of the lay mission that is appropriate to it. The, and this the church has not had at all. What we have had are uh, the catechesis for the sake of entering into the sacramental life of the church, but the lay mission has not truly been reflected and in a sense we, act, we lack a formation for it. The church always forms for a mission. The mission of the ordained, the care of souls. The mission of, of religious, according to their charism, the various works in which they are involved, again they receive a formation. The laity, and according to the paradigm we have inherited, have no mission. And so it hasn't occurred to the church to provide a formation. But this is, I think, essential. And finally, it is appropriate, utterly appropriate, for laymen and women to ask of the ordained that they take their place. So I want to end with a quick story. A young man was sent to me, this is years ago, I was chaplain at the University of California at Riverside at the time. His parents had been going through a very nasty divorce. And he had failed. Uh, uh, he'd been thrown out of St. John's College in, um, in Minnesota. Uh, he showed me his transcript. There was nothing on it except A's and F's. Absolutely nothing in the middle. He, had a, he was a brilliant student. He had a passing grade point average, but you can't pass with F's. And so he'd been, he'd been expelled. The, his story, and I've never seen anything quite like this, if he felt that his professor had real integrity, he worked in the class and invariably got an A. If he detected any real lack of integrity on the part of his professor, um, he shut down and simply got an F. This was his, again his response to his parents who were going through a nasty divorce. His sister brought him to me, I'd got to know her, and she wanted me to work with him. And so it was a rough ride because he expected absolute integrity from me and, uh, at every point and, and questioned everything, which was actually rather fun. The, uh, about a year into this, I decided I wanted to get him back into school, but it would have to be the University of California at Riverside because he'd come to know the community. So my challenge, how to get him with that transcript into the UC system. It's the top 20% of students in the, in the state. Happily, the, uh, the registrar of the university came to me as his confessor. And so I said to him, Bob, I phoned him and said, Bob, imagine your next penance <laughs> if you can't do something for me. And so I told him about the situation of this young man and uh, that I wanted to get him into UCR and I told him I would take personal responsibility for his performance. And so on that basis, I don't know how he did it, uh, Bob got him into the university. Now, it's on the quarter system. The first quarter went swimmingly, uh, straight A's. And as a matter of fact, one of his professors came to s seek me out at the Newman Center because this young man had produced for him the finest undergraduate paper he had ever known. And he wanted to know how was he inspired? What, what environment was he coming from? I, we later received that professor into the church. It was a wonderful story. But so first quarter, wonderful. Second quarter, again, straight A's. Third quarter, 
he decided to take a course in religious studies from a professor I knew had a huge chip on his shoulders, and I advised him not to. Now, he accepted my advice uh, as, as thoroughly as every student I've ever worked with. That is, he ignored it completely, and he took the course. And about the middle of the semester, his grades began to drop, and it was affecting the whole of his performance, and so I decided it was time for a come-to-Jesus conversation. So I called him into my office, sat him down, and said, listen, you are going to pass this. I reminded him that I had put my own reputation at stake. And so I said, I will help you. You know, we'll do it together, but you're going to do this. Now that kid sat there, teared a little bit actually, and then he looked at me and said, you are the first man in my life who's ever really taken me seriously. And he said, all you want to do there is sit and talk about my grades. And then he said to me, won't you take your place? Well, at that point I had no option either to apologize to him or strangle him. <laughs> but won't you take your, he was absolutely right. My concern in that moment had not been simply for him. It had been divided. In part it was for my own reputation. And so he was right. The, and frankly, I've been trying to take my place ever since. And I believe, though my heart, that what our hierarchy must hear, what every priest must hear, gently, and from one who shares apostolic responsibility, won't you take your place? And if we're looking for a final solution to what is facing us now in the church, I believe it is very simply that. And then that we work together somehow to affect the actual voice that the laity have been given in the, uh, through the Vatican Council documents, which has been preached by the magisterium, but which nonetheless is in a way trumped by the paradigm that, as we've received it. And so in that sense, we have work to do that is truly personal and not simply, if you wish, um, institutional in its direction. Thank you.